0: Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the RizzoCast. Put your hands together for Steven Rizzotto.
1: What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 106 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Rizzotto, and today we are joined by a very special guest, He's the former Los Angeles Dodgers general manager. He's been in baseball for 40 years and also an Emmy award-winning broadcaster and the author of, uh, of The Big Chair. Uh, go ahead and get that. It's on Amazon. I just read it. The Big Chair, the smooth hops and bad bounces from inside, from the inside world of the acclaimed Los Angeles Dodgers general manager. It is Ned Coletti. He joins the show. Ned, how are you doing? Welcome. Good morning.
0: Hey, good morning there, Stephen. Thanks. Thanks for the uh, the book plug. And yes, I uh, look forward to talking to you.
1: Had to plug the book, had to plug the book. It was a great read. And I definitely advise anybody um, that has, you know, followed, I guess, baseball for a long time to, to go ahead and dig into that. Um, I was done within it with within a week. So it's such a great read. Uh, let, let's hop right into it. I mean, you spent 40 seasons working in baseball uh, as an executive and broadcaster. Uh, on opening day, you announced that you know you were going to retire from baseball or step away for for a little bit. This is your first season without it in four decades. Do you do you miss it at all? Tell me what's going there. Oh, what's going on there?
0: You know, I, I miss um, I miss I think what I missed. I miss the um, the conversations. Uh, you know, you're in the Bay Area. I miss the conversations I'd have with Brian Sabian or uh, or Dusty Baker, or Felipe Alou, or or Boats. Uh, and on and on, and you know that to me was one of the great, um, great parts of the sport. Any sport is really just commiserating and trying to figure out how to get better at what you do by talking to people who do what you do, and you know that's become a little bit of a lost art uh, in the last five to ten years. So you know I miss that, and I I to, uh I look to find that wherever I can. I just went to the the Peck. Uh, baseball tournament at Scottsdale Stadium a few days ago and saw Oregon State and Washington and UCLA and Cal and went into a lot of people who scout a lot of people who I haven't seen for a little period of time and that's great that's that's what I've missed so know yeah, from time to time uh, you know I'll, I'll seek that out and can always go to a Dodger game or come up to the Bay Area go to a Giant game or you know Arizona where I'm at once in a while and go to a D-back game and see people but you know, that's it. I also got to the stage of life. And, uh, you know, you're, you're miles from the stage of life I'm at, you know, where I needed more life and less schedule. Because I tell you, you see 8,000, 9,000 major league games, college games, high school games for your drafts. It's a lot of baseball.
1: Yeah. And, and I know when people retire, they often want to get as far as far away from, you know, what they did as possible. So do you still get around to watching baseball? Is that still kind of on your your daily routine?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not my daily routine. You know, my responsibilities and my career include teaching at Pepperdine university, which takes a lot of time and effort. And also I scout for the San Jose sharks. So, you know, I've probably written 2,500 scouting reports since October. So all that stuff takes up time too. Plus, as I said, I'm looking for less less schedule and a little bit more life. So having those two big jobs, uh, the San Jose scouting job and also the Pepperdine job are two, two things that there's not a lot of scouts that are teaching at a major university. There's not a, a lot of people teaching at a major university that are scouting. So they are two full-time jobs. So I, I still have a lot to do and I I don't lack for for things to do. And I, uh, I work the baseball in when I can.
1: Yeah. Those students are probably loving that class by the way. And you mentioned that you're scouting with the San Jose sharks, um, which is not a baseball team. It's a, it's a team in the national hockey league. And, uh, I mean, tell me how you made that jump. I mean, two vastly different sports are I, I guess they're vastly from an outsider looking in. Um, so, so what is, what is that like kind of hopping? Is there, is there much of a difference in terms of scouting? Uh, in, in baseball and in hockey?
0: Um, there is, but there isn't. Uh, probably the best way I can answer that. And I'll give you a, I'll give you a little depth to that, uh, that bizarre kind of answer. You know, I think, um, you know, obviously you're on grass, or dirt, you're on ice, difference. Um, but when you think about the athlete, you know, I scout from the feet up. How do the feet work? Okay. How do the hands work? How does the mind work? How, what level of competition does somebody bring? Are they, how are they when the chips are down? How are they when things are going great? Will money change how they play? Some guys, it doesn't make any difference. They're playing as hard. Some guys, you never saw the player you signed before because they start to get a little bit, you know, a little bit soft maybe. So I think that, that that I think that goes not only with hockey and baseball, but I think it goes with any sport. I think it really goes with any, any, anything anybody does. You know, when you th- think about all the different kinds of careers there are, you know, you look at how people think, how they make decisions, how fast they make decisions, how good are their decisions. And when you're talking about a physical activity, how does their body work? How do their feet work? How do their hands work? You got to know that for either sport, and uh, and so that that's the same. They work sometimes differently, and you've got different. Different playing services and a salary cap league versus a luxury tax league and things like that. Uh, twice as many games in one than the other, but um, there's a lot of similarity to it. And I've I've been driven for for decades, you know, to find those people that that can make a difference.
1: That yeah, I was playing make a difference. Yeah, and I was going to say that. I mean, a lot of what goes in the scouting uh, probably has to do a lot with athletic projection. Uh, and, and intangibles, as you mentioned. And like, yeah, this guy moves well at shortstop. He moves well to his left. This guy gets down the ice quick. Um, this guy has a good head on his shoulders. You hear things like that. But is any of that changing in, in professional sports with the way that scouting is, you know, because I guess nowadays the argument could be made that teams are looking at a lot more numbers instead of treating athletes like human beings. Do you see that happening a lot?
0: Uh, I see it happening a little bit. Um, I don't think, I think any any team that's going to be successful is going to take all the information they can. I think any team that shuts out analytics is making a mistake. I think any team that just uses analytics and doesn't care about who's inside the jersey or the uniform, I think they're making a mistake. When you're in a leadership role, again, it it doesn't just go with baseball or hockey or sport. When you're in a leadership role and you're in a decision-making role, It's imperative. You get as much information as you can to make the right decisions. And I think both both kind of help you get to that point. And you got to decide if you're going to use one more than the other. But if you're not going to use one or the other, I don't think you're really doing your due diligence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And let's get in your career a little bit here in in baseball growing up. um, Kind of you described it in your book, a very lower class lifestyle in Chicago, big Cubs guy. How did you kind of uh, begin your love affair with baseball? When did that start and what uh, perpetrated the, uh, the, uh, just the desire to have baseball in your life, I guess, for the rest of your life?
0: Well, the, um, my first game was back in – sounds like a million years ago now. It was back in 1961, and my dad took me for my birthday. And, um, you know, I remember it vividly. And I had – my dad's brothers um, were – some of them were huge baseball fans. And so they talked the game. And so I started a, at a very young age to, to start to, to pay attention to it. And it's something that I've just had a passion for and been so magnificently blessed to be able to, to work in it for all these years. Um, as, as you alluded to, you know, I grew up in a, a humble background. Uh, we lived in a garage till I was five, six years old and moved into a house that was 900 square feet. Um, I was the first in my family to go to college. I have many older cousins. Uh, my parents' generation was really there for uh, survival and, and just trying to get through the day. And then uh, a lot of my cousins, almost the same thing where um, finishing high school was a big deal. And so, you know, that that's kind of where I'm from. And I had to learn, I learned, had to learn how to read people. I had to learn how to read situations because you were almost daily running into a situation you had to figure out because you know maybe somebody's trying to hustle you I mean who knows but uh you know you had to be able to do that and um, you know I struggled I struggled to learn uh high school was not not easy for me uh when I got to be a senior in high school there was no four-year school college in the state of Illinois I'm from Chicago that that would accept me so I went to a J.C. Which uh, isn't the worst thing, and I learned a lot. I started to learn how to learn, and started to get some confidence, and just took it from there. And um, been around sports my whole adult life. I, I wrote. I was a, a journalist, journalism major for in school at Northern Illinois University, where I graduated from, and, and um, wrote sports for four years before I started my baseball career, and just been blessed to have the career I've had, but it hasn't come without a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time, just, just a lot, because when you're not the smartest person in the room, or maybe not the smartest person, not even the 10th smartest person at a 10 person table, it takes you a lot more effort and thought process to get to where you aspire to be. But yeah, I've, uh, you know, I
1: learned a lot, and I had to learn a lot in a lot of tough environments. And you mentioned the growing up in a garage and, you know, you wrote in your book about how your shoes would be all floppy and broken. And uh, did that mindset of of wanting to be, you know, financially smart, you know, there's always, I guess when you come from a background of not a lot of money, you kind of want to, when you move on and you get money, you know, you kind of still want to be a little bit conservative with it, but your career job uh, description you know, you had the unique ability where, you know, you would have to spend other people's money. Like, was that weird for you to kind of like understand? Because I know, you know, you work with the the McCourt family and uh, later the new ownership down there in LA. Was it strange, you know, having that, I guess, luxury and that responsibility to spend other people's money? Did you like have any restrictions about that?
0: Well, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I had, um, you know, again, you know, sometimes what we see as the difficult parts of life turn out to be blessings But I grew up, how I grew up, helped me, I thought, do the best job I could negotiating. It wasn't easy for me to give away another $5 million to get a deal done, or $50 million to get a deal done. And you know, I've signed someplace, I signed Clayton for over $200 million, you know, i paid you know, Manny Ramirez 28 million for two, you know, things like that. a 145 or so for, for six Barry signed Barry, I think for five years and 90. And, um, it was always in the back of my mind and you, know, you have to, you have to realize the market you're in, but you also have to fight to do, do the best job you can. And a million dollars is still a million dollars. Okay. So I had to, you know, I had to always keep that in mind. So. I think sometimes the things that challenge us as, as young people, young adults that we don't necessarily look forward to actually help us a lot and help us see a lot of different through a lot of different windows of life. But yeah, I've, I've thought about it. And I went from, you know, the giants ownership. I got there in the candlestick days, they had just been been bought by Peter McGowan and and, and his group and, uh, and Larry and, um, and we went through some tough times at Candlestick and then a new ballpark came online and we started to draw 3 million people. After drawing 2 million people, I think maybe twice, maybe three times in, in like 40 years of Candlestick. When you think about that and you think about what the Giants have done since the year 2000, it's one of the great stories in sport. But, you know, as things changed, that changed. And I went to LA and it was a different dynamic with a family ownership and and they end up having a you know a divorce situation with the husband and wife, and then they end up in bankruptcy. So you know you, you have to deal with all of that too. But I was I was kind of kind of accustomed to to dealing with whatever whatever comes your way. you, you have to be able to adjust and adapt. If you can't, then you you you're going to end up doing something else. But adjustment and adapting to your environment and your situation is imperative. And then as as you mentioned, you know, the new group came in and have been phenomenal. They've done great stuff and they've done great financially, but I can't tell you, it was always, you know, I went from arguing for a little bit more to make a deal from ownership to almost telling ownership, whoa, 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 let's slow down here a little bit, you know, let's slow down the financial spigot here for a little bit, you know, so a lot of different lessons in there.
1: Yeah, can't you got to hit with two strikes, right? Make that adjustment. Uh, And you get to San Francisco in '94, as you mentioned, and you meet this guy, Brian Sabian, a guy who would later, you know, kind of become associated with you or you would become associated with him um, for for a good chunk of your career. What made Brian different from all the other executives? Because I know there's a lot of Giants fans that listen. Uh, and how did, how did he kind of break down the game differently? Cause everybody I've spoken to say that Brian Sabian thinks differently and his mind works differently than most baseball people. What made Brian Sabian different?
0: We spent a lot of time together and um, you know, I, I consider him one of my closest friends. We don't have to see each other every day or talk to each other every day to maintain a strong friendship, even though for a decade we competed strongly against each other, and some years wouldn't even say hello to each other, um, out of respect for each other. You know, you didn't wanna, you know, not wish somebody well, but she certainly didn't wish him well, you know? And <laughs> so you don't wanna really get into that. But um, what makes him different, I think, um, the thing that probably makes him the most different is his ability to make a decision and know when to make a decision. His patience for the environment was something that, that that he taught me, not by design, just by watching. Um, we'd be in spring training in Scottsdale in February, and I'd say, "Hey, you know what? This this guy might be able to help us, or this is something I you know I think we ought to think about, talk about." Wouldn't say nothing, just kind of look at me you get to the end of the season, October, November, and he'd say, hey, you remember we were sitting in Scottsdale and you brought this player up? I'd say, yeah. And he goes, now's the time. His, his uncanny approach to knowing when the proper time to make a decision is, was the best I've ever seen. I don't even know who's second. He it was the best at that. And sometimes that gets lost in life, okay? We all make decisions. Not all of them are going to be in the Chronicle or the Athletic or the Mercury News, but we all make decisions, okay? doesn't have to be on a baseball team, just in life. And the decisions we make put our life on a certain path or put other people's life on a certain path. So the decisions are really key. But knowing when to make the decision is, to me, as important as a decision you make. And he was the absolute best at it, and he could project. You look at the great Yankee teams uh, that Joe Torre managed and Brian Cashman, who I think was an intern for saves at one point, um, have had in the at the turn of the last century and, in, and a little bit into the 2000s. His fingerprints are all over those teams. I think he's a Hall of Fame executive. I think he's one of the most astute. And besides the decision-making thing I spoke about, one of the most astute people I've been around, and if you and quiet, and he doesn't brag about his career. He doesn't, he, doesn't want, he doesn't have to tell everybody how successful he was, but his fingerprints, besides three giant World Series teams and one that made it to game seven against Anaheim in 02, if you look back judiciously at those Yankee teams, in the late 1990s and into the early 2000s. Players he had a hand in drafting and developing are on that roster, including some of the Yankee Hall of Famers, some of the Baseball Hall of Famers. He had a hand in. There's probably 10 World Series teams, of which maybe six or 7 won it that he's connected to. I don't know anybody who can say that. That's... To me, he's a first, if there's such a thing as a first ballot executive Hall of Fame, he's it.
1: Yeah, and nobody really points to those Yankee teams. And and he had a a role in – you know developing Jorge Posada, Bernie Williams, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit. I mean the li- the That's list goes good
0: players you just
1: named. Yeah, the the list goes on and on. Um and, and the manager that you guys had in San Francisco was was Dusty Baker and I know that there's uh, milestones that he's hitting right now and a yes. lot of people have the question in the back of their mind and maybe it's unfair to 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 say this, as he's trying to guide an Astros team to to a championship, but a lot of people like to look ahead. You know over two thousand wins now, and everybody with more wins than him has ended up in Cooperstown. but the 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 big glaring thing on his resume is the the lack of a championship. But he has won everywhere he's been, otherwise, is Dusty Baker in your mind, a hall of famer? I think he is. You think
0: about not just longevity, but you do have to be you have to be very good to have longevity. Um, but he's, he's done great stuff with with teams that he's won everywhere. Uh, he was a big part of our Giants' success. And, you know, I miss talking to him. I, you know, we, we text once in a while, but I miss his wisdom. I miss his perspective. So many times I would find myself thinking, boy, I wish I, wish I could get a hold of Dusty today because this is a, you know, this is something I like to run by him. And you look at 2,000 wins, that's a lot of wins. Winning is difficult. Anybody that doesn't think winning is easy is tough, is tough has never had to do it at this level. There are far more managers in the history of sport that are under 500 than are over 500. And you get to 2,000 wins, huh, mercy. That is a lot of victory. That is a lot of management of people. Think how many players this man has shaken hands with and welcome to the club, so to speak, welcome to the clubhouse and then get the best, you know, get the best out of them. The list is probably one of the longest lists in the history of the sport. So that to me and a success that he's had uh, deserves recognition in Cooperstown.
1: And there's so much you just to kind of cap off the, the San Francisco era. There's so much you did there. I mean, a, a new ballpark was built when you were in the front office uh, you were just captivated by the whole Barry Bonds record chasing. Uh, the team got to the World Series in 2002 when they finally won it in 2010. And you were kind of on the other side of the Giants-Dodger rivalry at that point. Was there any feeling of, you know, may, maybe you had a small part in it? Was there any feeling of joy or happiness for them?
0: You know, it's, uh, I actually was quoted in an in a L.A. publication, I, what, what I'm going to tell you. And people didn't like what I said, (laughs) but I still don't really care if people liked what I said. Once we were eliminated and we weren't playing in the 210 world series, I couldn't root against an organization that I knew so many people in and including my son scouted for him. So I'm going to root against my son. Now, if we were playing them, no doubt, no doubt. There's no favor at that point in time. Zero left. There's numbers less than zero. That's where it sits. But once we were out of it in 210, I, I don't know anybody who would root against one of their own flesh and blood. And, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't stand up and cheer. I didn't, you know, go to games and, and, and wave a flag, but you know, I didn't sit there and say, boy, I hope they get beat. I hope they lose. People, you know, didn't like that. That's how I felt. But, you know, I'd, I'd ask, hey, have you ever rooted against your child? <laughs> Let me know when you root against your child how that feels and if that's if that's something you're really proud of. You know, we competed. We competed every day, and we knew, we knew who we had to beat every year. And, and we won, I think I went, I think I had five divisions, five division championships during a very short period of time in L.A., and turn the franchise around. So, you know, there was there was a lot of good work done there too. To think that that I wasn't invested in that as people aren't paying attention.
1: And back to Sabian one sec. Does anybody ever tell you that you guys just sound completely alike? Like I mean, I could tell that you spent a lot of time with him because I just hear it in the it like sound, it's like a carbon copy of like Brian Sabian. Like, or <laughs> maybe he's a carbon copy of you. I don't know who had the voice first.
0: Well <laughs> Uh, we we're sitting up in Candlestick Park one day, and the phone rings. And I pick it up, <laughs> and his wife says, "What time you think you'll be home?" And I knew, <laughs> I knew who it was. And I said, "I think you better talk to your husband." You know, she <laughs> guess you know the, the voice was too close, too similar to her husband's voice. But yeah, you know, I think uh, it was one of the greatest times of my career working in San Francisco and working with Sabes, you know, we, um, we saw things a lot alike. We saw things differently and we both had the respect for each other that we would challenge the thought process. Even if we agreed, even if we agreed on a player, one of us would take the other side and make the points that we hadn't made yet, just to really kind of, sharpen up the decision-making. It was the best, it was the best. I was there 11 years, it was the best 11 years I, I had in the game uh, because of where we came from too. You, you, you talk about the candlestick days. My first two years here, we lost 90 plus games both years. 94, 90, 95, and 96, I came at the end of 94. And um, lost over 90 games. And then Brian becomes a GM. That winner, we trade Matt Williams, obviously not a popular move at the time, but when that turned out to be the right move, if it was Matt or Barry, it had to be traded. And um, won a division in 97. Make a playoff game in 98, 163. Uh, 99, finish a few games back, 2000. I think we won 100 games. 201, I think we get eliminated on the Friday or Saturday before the last Sunday. 202. Wild card, make it to the World Series, 03, back in the playoffs. A lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. But I I really um the conversations we had, I think, made each other better. And I think we were our my strengths were things that he wasn't as good at, and he had many strengths that I wasn't good at and as good at. And so I think the combination was was spectacular
1: and successful. Yeah, and uh, I wonder, I wonder what time he's going to gonna get home. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great story. Yeah. Um, and, and now working for, for L.A., uh, 2005, that's when you were named general manager. Uh, the organization, as you mentioned a, a little bit ago, was kind of in a strange place, uh, but you led the club to playoff appearances in five of the nine seasons in L.A. I mean, since you left, they haven't even left the top. So, I mean, they're, they're still the best team in baseball, and they're still winning. Do you feel... Did did you feel comfortable right away taking that job and and knowing that, you know, you had the ability to possibly change this franchise? Well,
0: it's something that I had worked for. I had worked for it for 25 years. And uh, it was something I was honored. I would have... It would have been hard for me to ever leave San Francisco for any other job. But two or three jobs you'd have to leave for, including that one. And the team that... that uh, I joined and inherited, had lost 91 games the year before. Second worst franchise season and really since World War II for the Dodgers. So we had a lot of work to do immediately. And I had to get to know a staff and they had had so many GMs over a 10, 12 year period that there were a lot of factions, a lot of leadership things that had to to get solved. Um, So it was was a challenge and but we won, we went from 91 losses to 88 wins in one season in much the same technique that we had used in San Francisco. I went in the winter of 05, 06. I went after guys I knew could play and who had a hunger to win. Kenny Lofton, who we had acquired in 02, brought him to the Dodgers. Billy Miller, who up up winning a batting championship with the Red Sox. was a, a great giant before we traded him, uh, I think to the Cubs. Um, signed those guys, signed Rafael Fercal, who had a great young career in Atlanta and was a winner. nomar Garcia who ended up doing t v with for six seven years great great hitter came back to l a so we put together a group that that had the same type of of characterizations I would say as the ninety six to ninety seven giants players we signed in in between 96 and 97 that helped us go from 90 some losses to a division championship. You know, I kind of knew how to do that because of what we had done in San Francisco. And we did it. And we had a couple of rough years here and there, mainly because of ownership changing and going through what it did, as I mentioned earlier. But, you know, in the last, since 1997, which is 25 years ago, crazy to think that, teams I've been associated with, and this isn't, I'm not saying this is my doing, but I've been associated with them, have won a lot of games. have been to the postseason a ton of times. Some guys were free agents, some guys were drafts, some guys were international signs, both organizations, but won a lot of games. I think in the last 20, my last 25 seasons, um, before I wrapped it up on New Year's Eve, my last 25 seasons, I think there were two teams under 500. That's pretty good. Some pretty teams, good ratio. Some teams go 20 years without getting to the 500. They get to 500, it's cool, but I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to win. That just means you are won more than you've lost. I had one team in LA, and I think we had one team in maybe 04 or 05 that was under 500. And the rest of them have been over 500. And uh, yeah, I haven't been to GM for a handful of years, but. A lot of those players we we drafted and signed, you know had a you know them key guys for him Kershaw, Kenley, Justin Turner, Seeger, Bellinger, Jock Peterson, who's now a giant, um, a lot of a lot of guys, Julio Urias, you know, a lot of players who've contributed a lot, which makes me feel good that we we did some good stuff there.
1: And I have a friend that's a Dodger fan, and uh, his name is Joey. And he just he just sent me a text and said, "If McCourt let Ned spend, they would have probably win titles in the late 2000s. I don't know how much you could speak to that, but that was a comment from Joey. Shout out. Um, but is the lack of World Series during your your tenure in LA does that ever haunt you? Because I know you had you guys had some really good teams. No. Did anything sure. uh, Did anything feel left unfinished? Not really,
0: because I think I've, I've learned through life, there's only so many things you can control. Um, I couldn't control ownership, I couldn't control payroll, couldn't control my decisions on it. But again, you've got a lot of factors in, in assigning that you have no control over. Um, I know this, that um, it saves, I, I was, you know, he was the same. Everything we had to give, we gave and in our decision making and also in the time we spent and nobody knows their teams better than those who work in them on a daily basis who are saturated in it who wake up in the middle of the night thinking about the baseball team and tomorrow is christmas you know it's not even like you've got a game for another four months um that that's what we did so you know i couldn't how much I could do about getting to the LCS back-to-back years in my third and fourth years and having Philly have a team that won a World Series and got to a second one, not too much I could do about that. Not too much I could do about the Cardinals in my last year as a GM in 13 and 14. We got to the LCS, got beat in the division series with Clayton Kershaw on the mound. Both times we got beat in the deciding game, got the generational pitcher pitching. What am I going to do about that? You know. So yeah, would it have been nice to have won a World Series while you're the GM? Yeah, I guess so. You know. But again, there's so many things in life and I think it's one of the key pieces to managing your life. What do you have control over? Okay? When you really think of the list, it's not a long list. And for what I had control over, I have no regrets. Not every decision I made worked out. Not, any, not every decision anybody makes works out. He's got human beings involved on the other side of the decision, and some are going to flourish and some are going to fault. But, uh, you know, I've been so magnificently blessed in my career to be able to come where I come from, which we touched on for a second, and to be able to spend 40 years in baseball, three iconic franchises And, and never for a minute, you know, 13 in Chicago, 11 in San Francisco, but then I left and spent 16 with the Dodgers. That's pretty good for anybody. From people where I grew up, that's like, you know, doesn't happen. Yeah. So I've been very well
1: blessed. doesn't happen. And I want to touch on a few, few players here before we sign off. Clayton Kershaw was your your seventh overall pick in 2006. That was one of your first few Our years. first there. overall
0: pick. He was, a, he was seventh best. overall in
1: the draft. Yeah. First round pick um uh was he your guy all along you know there's some picks before that uh tell me about that selection was was kershaw if if you had the first round pick in the draft or if you had a first overall pick in the draft was kershaw still your guy
0: um that's a good question if you had the first overall pick although the first (laughs) overall pick was luke hochaver yeah and because of luke hochaver who'd been drafted by the dodgers the year before i got there and did not sign he went back in the draft, and Kansas City chose him first. Um, but we picked seven, and so Clayton was always our guy. Um, and had ho not gone back in the draft, there's a good chance that Clayton is gone at six. I'm not sure what we do there. There's two really good ones that, that went after Clayton that yeah. would have been okay, too, and, and, and Tim Lincecum and, and Max Scherzer. Um, but we liked the, the left handedness. We liked to compete. We liked the, the high school age. Um, the first six players were all college drafts. Clayton was the first high school player taken in that draft. And we had some good young players that were, were on the verge of getting to the big leagues or a year or two away. And Russell Martin and Matt Camp, James Loney. So we added him to it. And then I traded with Billy across the Bay there for Andre Ethier. So we had really, we continued to build like a young nucleus that, that played very well for a long time in that in that, that uh, organization.
1: And uh, someone from my hometown was also in that draft. The uh, Pacifica legend, Greg Reynolds from uh, Stanford was was up in that draft. Uh, and I met him a few times and I don't think he likes one that's brought up. Anyways, um uh, one of your one of your great finds was uh, was obviously Yasiel Puig and maybe it didn't work out the way you wanted it to maybe it did uh, but from a talent perspective it was a no-brainer I'm sure to, to sign this guy um, I mean he had uh, some other issues off the field was he someone that was ever able to be fixed you know w- with some of those instances off the field because now his career's, you know kind of gone downhill a little bit maybe he'll be back maybe you won't is there anything that you know, might might happen that could fix Yasio Puig. And I hate to put you on a spot like this to talk about a guy personally, uh, but you know him a little bit. Obviously, is there anything that that Yasio Puig is he fixable? I guess that's what I want to know.
0: Well, I, I haven't seen him play for a little while, so it's tough for me to ask answer that part of your question. Um, we signed him, and um, actually, in a very short period of time, we drafted and signed Seager. Um, signed Yasiel, and then a couple of weeks later, signed Julio Urias. So we had a pretty good couple months there. That was with new ownership. And we hadn't been able to get involved in Latin America for really the five or six years I had GM before that. We just didn't have the finances to do it. So we needed to do that too. We needed to inform the baseball world. We were back in business and really kind of inform the, the scouts slash poscones in Latin America, um, that we were back to being real and players in that, in that uh, part of the world. So he helped us do that. Um, tremendously gifted, great talent, and really a great entertainer too. Um, he could frustrate you some with his base running. Um, I haven't seen many players who could throw as well as he could throw. Um, and for a while, had, was an excellent hitter. I think there was uh, just an opinion, uh, the ability or the inability to continually adjust to pitching, especially good pitching, October pitching, um, was probably something that that he stalled at, and I think that that had a lot to do with where his career ended up. Uh, you've got to always be able to adjust, and but you know what I I, I like him a lot. I I, I never. I never felt that I knew about anybody that I knew what they had been up against in their life before they showed up in a clubhouse. And I always had to keep in mind that, that, you know, where he comes from, it's different than if he went to Stanford or UCLA, you know, went to Sarah or went to, you know, Harvard Westlake. That's not where he went to not where he grew up. That's not what his his first 20 some years of life were like. So we had to keep that in mind and understand that, you know, you have have off the field education as well as you have in-game education. And that goes for any player. It's it's different for everybody. But it was something that I always had to keep in mind when thinking about him or or young players. We drafted from Venezuela, not drafted, but signed from Venezuela or or the DR or, or Asia. You know, it's what, a, it's a different, different dynamic. And you look at a, a major league clubhouse, you may have somebody who went to Stanford sitting next to somebody who grew up in the backwoods of Georgia, who went to school with 40 kids, you know, who, uh, or grew up in New York City, or grew up in Maine, or grew up in North Dakota, or grew up in the, the Northwest, or grew up in Florida, college education. I mean, you think about all the different dynamics of, of people, and you're talking about having players at 16 if they're in Latin America or 18, 19, or to 21 when you're drafting them out of the out of the state universities and and, and high schools, or, or Canada, Puerto Rico. You know, there's everybody brings a different life experience to the game, and it's important to understand that and to to be able to meld that. Joe Torre had a, a, a saying. Uh, you know, teams win games, players win championships, and we thought it'd be cool to put in the clubhouse and put in a, you know, a couple of different spots in the stadium. And it's still up at, in, the, in the fifth level of Dodger Stadium, I think. And we went and we, to make it cool, we went and had every language or dialect that had ever been spoken in the Dodgers clubhouse in this big circle. In different, you know, he had his saying in the middle, and then his saying in all these different. Languages. There are like 27 different languages on it. Wow. So, you know, I mean, and our locker room was no different than the giant locker room or the A's locker room or anybody. Everybody's got an international, an international locker room. But you have to be able to understand that. And I think that's part of the ACL equation, was to understand where he came from. And not having lived where he lived or grew up where he grew up, you know, we had a you got to understand that. And so, you know, we we tried our best to do it, and I tried my best to do it. And, you know, I think he tried his best to do it.
1: Yeah, and I guess it really puts things in the perspective of how hard it is to win in the big leagues with all these different personalities with different backgrounds kind of combining, and they have to kind of act as one unit through the, uh, through the course of 162. Now, one of the people that uh, helped you, uh, one of your counterparts uh, over the course of 162 – uh, in the Dodgers front office for a long time was Kim Eng, who yes. uh, she, she's now the, uh, the, the first female general manager in baseball with the Marlins. And I know you speak very highly of Kim Eng. So how excited were you when you heard that uh, she was going to get that gig with the Marlins?
0: Very, very excited. Um, you know, so well deserved and hard earned. She she knows every aspect of the business she's she's running now. Uh, I knew her in Chicago, I worked for the Cubs, she worked for the White Sox, we were both in charge of our salary arbitration um, segments. So I, I knew her back then, I knew her when she was with the Yankees and um, I knew her when I came to the Dodgers, she, she had already been there as the assistant GM. And so much respect that um, we had the idea at one point in time and that ownership changed that we would change the front office and. I would move up to a president of baseball ops, and she would become the GM of the Dodgers, which we thought was really appropriate, considering the first black player, first prominent Korean player, first prominent Japanese player, and on and on. Um, but didn't happen. Ownership, you know, kind of we had that year of of different things going on, and she went to New York to to work in a, in the commissioner's office, and then I probably talked to five or six different teams. Uh, my first six six years out until about last year um, about running their clubs and they'd always say okay we want you as the president of baseball ops who would your general manager be and every time I'd say I'm starting with Kim In like wow you know and uh, so when when she finally got that chance with Miami uh, you know I talked to her a couple times and you know She knows what she's doing. She knows how it works. She knows what to look for. She knows the the tempo of a season, the rhythm of a season, and I'm just really happy for her. And um, you know, Kim has deserved it deserved it for a long time, and worked at it so she could be prepared for most anything that comes their way. And you know, you there's a lot of things that you have to be prepared for. Some You don't know are coming, some you do know are coming but when you think of her career and her scouting background her development background, her negotiation background her team building background, her personality her ability to to mix inside a conversation with all sorts of different types of people from different cultures and different worlds and different experiences. Phenomenal that that she has
1: that chance. Yeah, no for sure. And one thing to wrap it up here, when when the Giants uh, GM job became vacated and they were looking uh, for a president of baseball ops and, um, you know, Brian Sabian and Bobby Evans were kind of on their way out and, you know, they had been reassigned or whatnot. Um, The first tweet that I saw was that Ned Colletti's the front runner for this job. So how much was that? Was that true? Was that like fact or fiction? Did anybody ever approach you about uh, this, this Giants opening?
0: Well, I knew what was going on a little bit. I mean, unless Larry Bear was tweeting that out, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think it has much credence, you know. Um, I love San Francisco and would I have gone back in probably most any role of of helping in a heartbeat. There's a lot of the ownership I still stay in touch with there. A lot of the, the people that uh, I've worked with that are still there, we we stay in touch. A lot of people who I worked with who left, I still stay in touch with. In fact, I was, about to come up there in a couple of weeks and, and buy about 16 people dinner at my favorite Italian spot in North Beach, Sardinis. Yeah, and just, just take out my my friends and you know we've competed against each other for a long time, but you know they're they're buddies, they're friends. They're, you know, men, women, people that uh, I have a, a ton of respect for and and a lot of friendship for. So I would have I would have jumped at the chance to come back and, and pretty much
1: any role that uh, that Larry saw fit. But uh, didn't happen. What's your what's your relationship, Roko? What's your relationship with uh, with Farhan Zaidi? Pretty good, I think. You know, um, he came in and I really didn't know him from his Oakland
0: career, and uh, we spent a lot of time in conversation. I think what I know about Farhan is he's very very bright, very smart, and only gets smarter. Started out really smart and only gets smarter. And I think if we had 30 conversations 40 conversations everyone had laughter in them there was always a soft part of a conversation that we had laughter thrown in where one of us would think something was funny about what the other one said and and laugh about it and enjoy each other's company you know i mean he's gonna he's been successful in in building another franchise there that's going to be successful for a long time
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And here he's brags about how he won all those fantasy football uh, football leagues with the Dodgers. And here he comes to San Francisco and just, I mean, continues to uh, to, you know, take that team by storm and kind of run it like a like a fantasy football team, kind of, uh, you know, so it's it's definitely a, 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 an interesting way to manage a club. Um, Ned, I really appreciate you coming on. This was so much fun. I'm sure we could talk for hours, but uh, it was it was awesome to uh, to chat.
0: Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me on and, and thinking of me and giving me the invite.
1: Absolutely. And again, you guys could find the book. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's probably where I got it at Barnes and Noble. I don't know if they even still have Barnes and Nobles around everywhere. That's too bad. Uh, but it's called The Big Chair, The Smooth Hops and Bad Bounces from Inside the World of the Acclaimed Los Angeles Dodgers General Manager. Uh, two anecdotes that stuck out to me, everybody, for for those out there that, that I always took back. It's the Brad Penny story is fantastic. That's one of my (laughs) that that, I think that made me laugh out loud. I was in my room alone reading it and the Brad Penny story popped up and I think I chuckled to myself and also the uh, this also stuck with me and Nick Punto. You might not know what I'm talking about now, but and Nick Punto, you'll know by the end of the book. So
0: I'm surprised being Italian that you didn't bring up the Frank Sinatra chapter.
1: Oh, that's another. Yeah. Frank Sinatra. Uh, Ned
0: Coletti got his
1: feet right,
0: right in San Francisco. Yeah, got to speak with... Uh... Closed down a little while ago, Tommy Toys by the Transamerica Building. One more thing on, on that book. Yeah. I wrote it by accident. I had no intent to write a book. I just wanted to, when the GM thing ended, I had, I had free time for the first time. And I needed something to schedule my time and to have something to really be responsible for. So I used to write from about 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., four or five days a week. High-end journaling. That's what I did. And one thing led to another, and I met uh, I ran into an old buddy who was sitting having dinner with a, the, maybe the best literary agent in, in the country, David Bigliano. And one thing led to another, and it was a bestseller for five months. You know, unbelievable. But I really didn't do it to to do it. You know, to write it. I just kind of wrote it to get it out of my head. Next thing you know, it's uh, people had an interest in it, which I'm really grateful for
1: yeah absolutely and i cannot yeah good call in the sinatra chapter everybody has to go check that one out uh we're glad that ned didn't piss anybody off and got out of there safely so very very, very happy about that all right you guys can follow the podcast it was a nice
0: pleasant dinner don't don't mislead people here. yeah no I, yeah,
1: <laughs> fake news meet no um yeah, go ahead and follow the the podcast on Twitter and Instagram as well at RizzoCast and subscribe Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find YouTube, wherever you find your, your podcast. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you.